Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked all the way to the third and fourth cantos of Purgatorio. In this episode of our podcast, I'm going to simply read through my English translation of Cantos 3 and 4 of Purgatorio. No sound effects, no fancy stuff. I just want you to hear the plot and the story and the thematics and an introduction to the next two Cantos of Purgatorio. This translation is not on my website yet. I'll break it down into the individual passages when we get to them. For now, i just like you to sit back because we're about to start the climb. <laughs> that suddenly struck me as very funny. You sit back and we're going to start the climb. <laughs> you hang out and do nothing and we're going to start up the mountain. Well, we are. These two cantos begin the arduous work of Purgatorio. Arduous, but fun. Fun intellectually, and we will even see funny. Purgatory is funny? Maybe so. So here we go. Purgatorio, Cantos 3 and 4. Despite the fact that the crowd's instantaneous flight had scattered them across the plain, turning them toward the mountain where rational justice probes us, I, by contrast, pulled up close to my trusty companion. How could I have run on without him, who would have guided my way up the mountain? He seemed as if he were torn up with self-loathing. Oh, pure conscience, and a noble one, too. How the sting of a little failure is so bitter for you, when his feet had let go of that frenzied pace that disfigures the dignity of every action, my mind, at first held in check, broadened its outlook as if it were on a fervent search. I gave my full attention to the highest hill of all. It unlakes itself right up to the heavens. The sunlight flaming red rays behind me was cut up in front of me by my own figure in such a way that it was formed by the rays resting on me. I whipped around in fear, thinking I'd been abandoned the moment I saw the ground before me, darkened by me alone. Then my comfort, Virgil, turned fully toward me and said, "'Why are you still distrustful?' Don't you believe that I'm next to you and that I guide you? It's now evening, back where the body with which I used to make a shadow is buried. Naples has my corpse. It was taken from Brindisi. If I don't cast a shadow now, don't marvel more than you would at the heavens where one celestial sphere doesn't block the light of another. To suffer torments, heat, and cold, the great power grants us bodies like these. Even so, it doesn't grant us the revelation to explain its ways. Anybody is crazy who hopes our reason has the ability to transverse the infinite path that the one substance in three persons takes. Be happy, O human race, with the quia, because if you'd been able to see everything, there would have been no need for Mary to have given birth. 
And you've seen the fruitless desire of that sort, whose longing to have their desires fulfilled has eternally been the cause of their grief. I'm talking about Aristotle and Plato and a lot of others. At this point, he lowered his forehead, said no more, and remained in distress. In the meantime, we'd come to the foot of the mountain where we found a cliff so steep that the buffest legs wouldn't have been able to get up it. Consider that desolate terrain between Lerici and Turbia. That pile of ruin is little more than a wide and easy staircase compared to this. Okay, who could know on which hand there's a less steep climb, my master Virgil said as he brought his footsteps to a halt. Where's the spot someone without wings can climb? Standing there with his gaze lowered, he was racking his brain about the road ahead. I was looking up, all around the rocks, when there appeared to me on the left a group of human souls who were indeed moving their feet toward us, although it didn't seem they were actually doing that, given how slowly they came on. Master, I said, lift up your eyes, behold, over there are some who might give us some guidance if you aren't able to noodle out this on your own. So he looked over there and with a sigh of relief said, let's go toward them, for they're coming along so softly. Firm up your hopes, my sweet son. Even after we'd gone a thousand paces, these people were still a long way off, as far away as a skilled arm could have hurled a stone, when they all pressed themselves tight against the wall of the steep cliff. They stood still and clumped together as people halt to watch out when they're in doubt. Oh, well-finished spirits, oh, those already among the elect, Virgil began, for the sake of that peace for which I believe you all are waiting, tell us where the mountain slopes so that it's possible to go up it, for lost time irritates most the ones who know the most. As little sheep come out of an enclosure, first one, then two, then three, while the rest stand back shy, turning their eyes and snouts to the ground. And what the first one does, the others do, bunching up behind him if he comes to a stop, simple and quiet, without really knowing why. So I saw the happy flock's lead guys move to come toward us. They were modest in their bearing, yet honorable in their gait. The moment those in front saw the light broken on the ground in front of me on my right side so that my shadow stretched from me to the cliff, they stopped and even backed up a bit, as did even the ones coming on from behind, although they didn't really know why. Without your asking, I confess to you that this thing you see is indeed a human body cutting off the sunlight from the ground, Virgil said. Don't marvel at it but believe that it is not without some power from heaven that he's trying to get up this pediment. So said my master Virgil, and the worthy people said, turn around and go on in front of us, making a sign with the backs of their hands. And one of them began, whoever you might be, as you go along, turn your face back toward me. Consider whether you ever saw me back over there. I turned toward him and stared hard. He was gorgeous and blonde with noble features, although one of his eyebrows had been slashed through by a blow. 
When I courteously replied that I'd never seen his face before, he said, okay, check this out. He showed me a gash at the top of his chest. Then he smiled and said, I'm Manfred, grandson of the Empress Constance. So I beg you, when you return, to go to my beautiful daughter, mother of the honor of Sicily and Aragon. Tell her the truth, no matter what else is said. After I had my body shredded by two fatal stabs, I, wailing, gave myself back to the one who pardons so willingly. My sins were indeed horrible, but the infinite goodness has such wide-open arms that they can take back all who return to them. The shepherd of Cosenza was sent out to hunt for me by Clement. If he'd read correctly this aspect of God, the bones of my body would still lie near the head of Benevento's bridge under a marker of those heavy stones. Now they've been washed by the rain and moved by the wind out beyond the kingdom, close to the Verdi's banks, where he took them with his torches snuffed out. No one is so lost, even by the maledictions of those men, that eternal love can't come back to them as long as hope shows even a hint of green. Truth be told, whoever dies excommunicated by the Holy Church, even if they repent right at the last, has to remain outside on this bank thirtyfold for the amount of time spent in their rebellion unless the sentence gets cut short by good prayers. See now if you can lighten my load by revealing to my good Constance where you have seen me and how long I am still kept out. For a great deal is gained here by means of those who are back over there. Whenever Either from delight or from pain, some sensation is understood by our faculties. The attention of our whole soul is focused on that very thing, which then seems to negate the capabilities of our other powers. And by the way, this process stands against the error which believes that one soul in us is somehow kindled by another soul in us. And thus, when something heard or seen holds so tightly onto the soul, then turn to it, time can go by without a person even being aware of it. That's because there is one ability that can pay attention to time, but another is now maintaining the soul's attention. In this case, the latter is fixed in place and the former released. Of just this sort of thing, I had a true experience as I listened to that spirit and Escaped in wonder. In fact, the sun had climbed a full 50 degrees, and I hadn't even paid attention to it when we all came to a spot where the souls cried out in one voice, Here's what you've been asking about. Often, when grapes are ripening, a guy from the village thrusting a fork full of thorns into a hedge might well plug a larger hole than my leader now climbed through, with me right behind him. Both of us, now alone, once that regiment of souls had departed. You can go all the way up San Leo and come down to Noli. You can even summit Bismantova and even Cancume on foot. But here, it seems as if a guy's got to fly. I, I mean to say, on swift wings and plumes of great desire, as I did behind my hiking guide, who gave me great hope and lit the way for me. 
We climbed inside a cleft in the rock that squeezed close on either side of us. The ground underneath us required both our feet and our hands. When we got up to the fissure's uppermost ledge and came out into the open air again, I said, My master, which way should we go? And Virgil said to me, don't even fall back one step. Just keep going up this mountain behind me until some wise guide appears before us. The summit was so tall that it wasn't even visible. The gradient was steeper than a line marked from a circle's mid-quadrant to its center. I was worn out when I set in to say, Oh, sweet father, turn back and notice how I'll be left alone if you don't wait up. My son, he said, hoist yourself up here. He pointed to the ledge a little higher that went on to make a circle all around the slope. His words were my goad, so much so that I pushed myself to climb all the way up until that ledge was firmly underfoot. The two of us sat down there to rest for a bit. We were facing east, the direction from which we'd climb, because it does one good to see how far you've come. First, I set my eyes on the shore far below, then up to the sun above, and I was astounded to see that its rays hit us from the left. The poet saw how I was completely baffled, almost struck dumb by the chariot of light, which now lay between us and the north wind. So Virgil said to me, if Castor and Pollux kept company with that mirror that moves its light both north and south, you'd see the zodiac's rosy glow turned even more toward the bears, unless it somehow was able to leave its ancient track. You'll have to think hard to know how this can be. Concentrate and imagine Zion positioned on the earth in relation to this mountain so that they both have the same horizon, although they're in different hemispheres. Then you'll see that the road that Phaeton failed to drive to his misfortune has to pass the one on one side and the other on the other side of that horizon if you're able to apply your intellect's facilities. For sure, my master, I said. I've never seen it all so clearly as I understand it right now, just at the very spot where my genius was most lacking. The middle circle of the turning heavens, which certain sciences call the equator, and which always takes its stand between the sun and winter, according to the reasoning you said, is as far north here as the Hebrews saw it in the sky from the other side, from the more torrid regions. But if it please you, I'd like to know how far we have to go, for the mountain slopes farther up than my eyes can climb. And Virgil said to me, this mountain is such that the climb is much harder at the start. The more you go up, the less bad it gets. Thus, when the climb seems altogether so gentle that it's as easy as floating in a boat that lets the current take it down a stream, then this trail will have come to its end. That's where you should wait to rest your weary self. I've got no more to say. I do know this much is true. As soon as he'd uttered these words, a voice quite close at hand said, Maybe you'll feel the need to sit down before that. At the sound of this, we both turned around and saw a huge rock to our left that neither I nor he had noticed at first. We walked over to it, and some people were there. They were hanging around in the shade behind the boulder like guys who've settled in for a quiet siesta. One of them 
who seemed so very worn out to me, was sitting with his arms wrapped around his knees, pressing his face down between them. Oh, my sweet lord, I said, check out the one who looks so lazy that sloth itself might as well be his baby sister. Then that guy turned his attention to us, barely shifting his face up along his thigh and said, fine, go on up if you're so tough. That's when I recognized him. Even the pain caused by my shortness of breath didn't stop me from going up to him, at which point when I got up to him, he barely raised his head to say, Have you clearly seen how the sun drives his chariot over your left shoulder? His lazy movements and curt words brought a little smile to my lips, and I started in by saying, Balakwa. Now, I'm not sad about your fate, but tell me, why are you sitting around here like this? Are you waiting for an escort or have your usual ways caught up with you again? And he said, oh, brother, why should I bother with this climb? I'm not going to be able to get to my torments because of the angel of God who sits in front of the gate. First off, I have to endure as many turns of the heavens on the outskirts here as I did in my past life, for I staved off my good sighing until the very end. That is, unless I'm first helped by the prayers rising up here from a heart that lives in grace. What's the good of any other if it can't be heard in heaven? At this point, the poet Virgil had already started to climb without me saying, Come on! See how the meridian is now torched by the sun? And night uses her foot to shade the shores of Morocco. Those are the third and fourth cantos of Purgatorio, and they are packed, loaded, unbelievable. (laughs) In so many ways, we've started the climb, and just as we start the climb, we meet a guy who says, I don't want (laughs) to. I meet my spirit buddy, Balakwa. I just don't want to. Don't make me. It's an unbelievably complicated set of passages, and it raises some, uh, what do I want to say, interpretive questions, some analytical questions. And let me just first pose four for you before we set into looking at it passage by passage. First off, these two cantos are clearly linked because they are very structurally similar. We start off with what Dante would call philosophical matter. Now, that may be theological or astronomical or astrological or geographical, but we start off with a discussion of philosophy in Dante's sense of the word in each of the two cantos, and then we turn to an encounter with a soul, Manfred or Balacqua. So they're both very similarly structured. And this is going to bring up an interesting question for us that is going to plague us to the end of Paradiso. That is, what is Dante's notion of a plot? Now, let me just stop and say, Dante doesn't understand plot the way you and I now do. But still, he understands story, and he understands story development. And he understands, at least implicitly, we might argue, that story requires causality. It requires A to cause B to cause C to cause D. That's any good story, whether it be some, I don't know, mass market TV show or a great piece of literature, it requires a causal chain to happen. 
Well, what happens here when causal chains seem to break down? Is this still the story? Dante is goading us to important questions that link these two souls, Manfred and Balacqua, with the philosophical matter that comes before them. This is pushing us in many ways, and the poet, Dante, is behind the scenes forcing us into more and more complicated analytical stances than we ever before saw in Inferno. These two cantos are part of the incredible character development of Virgil across the landscape of comedy. And there are many ways in which the opening parts of Purgatorio are truly Virgil's story. Most of the drama is going to get located inside Virgil, even when Dante is talking to Balacqua and Casella. Virgil is going to carry the node of tragedy and sadness with him into the redeemed part of the afterlife. And that balancing act between the ecstasy of redemption and the sadness of Virgil's fate is going to become increasingly pronounced for us. Dante is playing with dynamite here because we could start if we weren't careful, we could start, and I certainly will, start to question the justice of God. Why is Virgil not among the redeemed? And what happens to us as we climb this happy mountain in which souls are purgated to get ready for the vision of God? What happens when all along we're dragging behind us a piece of sorrow or better, we're being led by a piece of sorrow. <laughs> we're being led by a note of tragedy up the ultimately comedic mountain. Where exactly are we? And I don't mean in a discussion of where is purgatory, because these are the cantos that come to terms with where exactly purgatory is, that whole discussion of horizons in Jerusalem or Zion and where it's located and where the mountain's located. All right, that kind of gets settled for us here in a very fundamental but difficult way. However, where are we on this mountain We clearly are not in purgatory yet because there's all this talk about how long I've been left out from Manfred or Balacqua, the angel who sits in front of the gate. So we haven't got any gate yet. Where are we? There's a long commentary tradition about where we are. But I just want to note that there's a way in which I can throw down certain words at you that the commentators use to describe this place. But I think it does a disservice to it. It then categorizes it in your mind. It sets it in your mind. But I think Dante wants you to be a little more befuddled. We're climbing. We're doing what we're supposed to do on a mountain. We're getting up it. But we're not in purgatory yet. What? Wait. Hold on. (laughs) Where are we? And who are these people? And how come they're on this mountain, but they're not in purgatory? These are huge questions. And Dante does not step out from behind the poem and explain them to us. Once again, the poet is asking us to figure things out. And these things get increasingly difficult as we move into increasingly unfamiliar territory like purgatory. 
And of course, we're going to have to talk a lot about the balance between the heroic, noble, gorgeous, blonde Manfred, oh my gosh, this this knight warrior all gashed up sitting here, and the, la- <laughs> the lazy, indolent Blockwo who's just resting behind a boulder in the shade saying, oh, do I have to? Come on. Don't make me do this. The juxtaposition of heroism, of chivalric nobility, and Balak was muling self between, well, what do we want to say, between the very well-known historical figure of Manfred, we'll talk about that, and the rather unknown Balakwa, we'll talk about that. These two figures are balanced against each other, this giant figure of history, this unknown friend of Dante's Balacqua. Notice how they sit on an uneasy balance between each other. We'll explore so much of that in the episodes ahead. So get ready. We're taking on Cantos 3 and 4 in the next episodes of Walking with Dante. To get there, you need to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Please, if you would, drop a rating for it. Go to my website, walkingwithdante.com or markscarborough.com. You can drop comments there and get in discussions with me and others about these very cantos and issues raised by these podcast episodes of Walking with Dante. It would be great to have you there. It's great to have you on the journey wherever you are. Thanks for walking with me. I'm walking too. And sometimes I'm Manfred and sometimes I'm Balakwa. But mostly... I'm just Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.